Hello, everyone, and welcome to the June 13th edition of WorkCom Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles with Floyd, Scarin, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us. Let's get started with our litigation report. The industry now awaits the opinion of the California Supreme Court in the controversial 2009 COLA case of Duncan versus WCAB. The case was submitted for decision on May 24th. Meanwhile, a new WCAB panel decision helps clarify how attorney fees are to be calculated in total disability cases. The case is Lena Wilson versus Piedmont Lumber and Mill Company. The trial judge awarded 100% disability to the claimant and about $33,000 in fees to her attorney. The attorney petitioned for reconsideration asking for a bigger fee. He claimed that there was a significant discrepancy between the attorney fees awarded by the Santa Rosa District Office of the WCAB and those awarded by other district offices. The decision after reconsideration increased the fee from 12 to 15 percent of the award because the WCAB found the case was one of above average complexity. And the WCAB also increased the fee based upon a potentially higher present value of the award after the COLA adjustment. The DEU had computed the present value of the award at about $275,000, assuming that the payment rate would remain constant. They did not assume any COLA would apply over the life of the claimant. Applicant's attorney claimed the present value of the award should be $815,000, derived from informal calculations obtained earlier from the former DEU manager, Blair McGowan. The WCAB also agreed with this concept. When calculating the present value of any total disability or life pension award, the DEU should determine whether any estimated average annual COLA should be applied to the remaining life of the worker. The DEU's current policy is to apply an estimated average annual COLA in calculating present value. In this regard, the WCAB took judicial notice of the written materials on commutations from the statewide 15th Annual Educational Conference given by the DWC in 2008, which were prepared when McGowan was still the DEU manager. Those written materials state that in the absence of a request by the work comp judge or the parties to use a different percentage, the DEU will use 4.7% as the estimated average annual COLA in determining the present value of total disability or a life pension award. There were panel decisions in the past where the WCAB approved this method. Nonetheless, the WCAB cautioned that this does not mean the 4.7% figure is absolute. A rater who prepares a present value calculation is free to use a different figure. The WCAB was mindful of the fact that increases in the state average weekly wage have been almost uniformly less than 4.7% over the last eight years. In fact, more recent materials from the DEU assume an average annual increase in the state average weekly wage of 4.6%. The Wilson case was remanded to the work comp judge to refer this matter to the DEU to calculate the present value of applicant's permanent disability award using whatever average future COLA, if any, that the rater deems appropriate. Since the question of when a COLA should start is currently pending before the Supreme Court in Duncan, the DEU should issue three alternative present value calculations using the three possible start dates. 
The work comp judge should use the lower calculation with jurisdiction retained to increase the fee if needed to comply with the outcome in Duncan. A San Francisco Superior Court has approved a rehabilitation plan for a majestic insurance company over the objections of a group of contractors in the state who said the company still owed them $10.2 million in unearned premiums Majestic had previously collected. Under the terms of the plan, Majestic will be required to transfer its insurance liabilities and certain assets to Amtrust North America Incorporated. Amtrust would then assume responsibility for the administration and payment of all policyholder claims under Majestic's policies. The rehabilitation plan also includes additional requirements such as a lost portfolio transfer reinsurance uh, agreements and sales of renewal rights and an asset purchase transaction. But in a recent court filing, the group of contractors questioned Amtrust's involvement, saying Amtrust has been involved with Majestic since 2008 and had a conflict of interest. Despite these objections, the California Superior Court ultimately accepted Majestic's rehabilitation plan as is. NFL and other professional sport teams have been plagued by hundreds of industrial injury claims filed by out-of-state players against them in California workers' compensation system. Jurisdiction in California is based upon a player having played as little as a single game or having an agent sign their contract within the state. These claims have sparked federal litigation, legislative initiatives in offended states, and other challenges to this practice. Compounding the multi-jurisdictional complexity of these cases is the issue of the reach of the team's insurance coverage. A few WCAB panel decisions over the last several years have illustrated these coverage problems. In the case of Lonnie Shelton versus Cleveland Cavaliers, the WCAB agreed that the Ohio Bureau of Workers' Compensation did not have liability as it is not authorized to write insurance in California, and it dismissed them. The involved team, despite having this insurance, was still liable for the claim. In another case of George Johnson versus the New Jersey Nets, the WCAB dismissed the Washington State Department of Labor and Industry, which is the monopolistic state fund in Washington, and the case was remanded to determine if the Seattle Supersonics were illegally uninsured. And this week, St. Paul Fire and Marine Insurance Company sued the Denver Broncos and nine of their players in a federal district court in Colorado to resolve an insurance coverage dispute involving workers' compensation claims pending in California. The players are Edwin Smith, Floyd Little, John Rouser, Louis Wright, Goodwin Turk, Barney Chavos, Mike Schnitker, William Van Heusen, and Randolph Gradishar. Allegedly, none of them are California residents. It is alleged in this suit that each of them have nonetheless filed workers' compensation claims here in California. St. Paul alleges that the team has made a demand under the policies for payment of benefits relating to the California claims, but that the policies provide no coverage for the California claims. Further, certain of the California claims fall outside of the policy periods. St. Paul seeks declaratory relief from the federal district court in Colorado to the effect that they have no obligation to pay any benefits under these policies for the nine claims. The complaint was filed on June 6th and no answer has yet been filed by the team. And now our fraud report. A top healthcare fraud attorney is changing sides. 
Michael Lokes was arguably the nation's most influential prosecutor of healthcare fraud. He racked up a quarter century of convictions and mega settlements using whistleblowers and secret grand juries to pressure major pharmaceutical and health companies to end illegal practices. Once described as a cross between a firebrand preacher and a charismatic litigator, Mr. Locks burnished a reputation aptly captured in a Fortune magazine headline, Why Do Drug Companies Fear This Man? Maybe because he's declared all-out war on cheats in the drug industry. Those who have known him are quick to recall that his crowning achievement was a $2.3 billion settlement against Pfizer that capped a four-year secret investigation. But Mr. Lauchs, a Republican, left the United States Attorney's Office in Boston after he was passed over for the top post when President Obama appointed a Democrat. Mr. Lauchs joined the Skadden Arps law firm last July and has emerged in recent months as a zealous corporate defender of the medical companies he once vilified. In a six-page memo to his clients, Mr. Lauchs bemoaned strategies he had once embraced. He claimed that the government and the whistleblowers have an advantage and that federal investigators were now using the law unfairly. He complains that prosecutors keep the company in the dark, often for years, as to the specific allegations against them. Many of his colleagues voiced their disappointment that he's gone over to the other side. Federal ethics rules prohibit Mr. Lauchs from any dealings with the United States Attorney's Office in Boston for a year after his resignation, and he can never be involved in cases he investigated directly. But he is not barred from representing clients he once prosecuted on other matters. His law firm's roster includes some of the biggest companies he once investigated, including Pfizer, Merck, Shering Plow, Bristol-Myers Squibb, and Medtronic. He defends his newfound friendship with former foes and notes that he's still wearing cowboy boots native to his Oklahoma childhood, even though he's now working in the white-collar division of a prestigious law firm. The Justice Department just announced that the U.S. subsidiary of Belgian pharmaceutical manufacturer UCBSA pleaded guilty to the off-label promotion of its epilepsy drug Kepra and will pay more than $34 million to resolve its criminal and civil liability. Under the terms of the plea agreement before the U.S. Court for the District of Columbia, UCB Incorporated pleaded guilty to a misdemeanor in connection with the company's misbranding of Kepra in violation of the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act. Kepra was approved by the FDA as an anti-epileptic drug. Kepra is not approved for the treatment of migraine headache, psychiatric conditions, or pain conditions. A manufacturer may not market or promote a drug for any off-label uses not specified in the FDA-approved product label. The FDA has jurisdiction over drug manufacturers but cannot prevent physicians from prescribing drugs for off-label use. Physicians are regulated by state licensing agencies. The government alleged that UCB promoted the sale of Kepra for off-label use in the treatment of migraine by generating and disseminating posters representing that Kepra was safe and effective for treating migraine. The posters did not disclose UCB's sponsorship of these studies or that UCB's own clinical trial had failed to demonstrate that Kepra was effective in treating migraine. The federal share of the civil settlement is nearly $16 million and the state Medicaid share is nearly, nearly $10 million.
According to new statistics from the nonprofit Taxpayers Against Fraud, or TAF, the ranks of those alleged to be federal cheaters are occupied almost entirely by the healthcare pharmaceutical industry. The TAF study of the top 20 court judgments or agreed upon settlements in fraud lawsuits is ranked by dollar amounts. The number one fraud offender was Pfizer. Pfizer paid a total of $2.3 billion, of which $1.3 billion was a criminal fine for kickbacks and off-label marketing, and $1 billion was paid under the False Claims Act. Number two fraud offender was Tenet Healthcare. In 2006, Tenet agreed to pay the federal government $900 million for billing violations that included manipulations of outlier payments, as well as kickbacks and upcoding and bill padding. The number three fraud offender was HCA. In 2000, HCA, the largest for-profit hospital chain in the United States, pled guilty to criminal conduct and agreed to pay more than $840 million in criminal fines, civil penalties, and damages for unlawful billing practices. The number four fraud offender was Merck. In 2008, Merck settled the very first nominal pricing fraud case in which the company was accused of taking kickbacks and violating Medicaid best price regulations for Vioxx, Zocor, Pepsid, Cozar, Fosamax, Maxalt, and Singulaire. The list continues with HCA $630 million, GlaxoSmithKline $600 million, Serrano $567 million, Takeda Abbott Pharmaceutical Products nearly $560 million, AstraZeneca $520 million, Lilly Pharmaceuticals, $438 million. Abbott Labs, $400 million. Cephalon, $375 million. Bristol-Myers Squibb, $328 million, and so on. As you read through the top 20 list of fiscal malfactors who were either found guilty or agreed to settle in fraud cases against Uncle Sam, one fact stands out with startling clarity. 95% 95% of these cheaters were healthcare players, including some of the most venerated names in the business. And now our medical report. The American College of Occupational and Environmental Medicine, or ACOM, developed and is providing new ACOM guidelines for the chronic use of opioids. The new guideline is free to the medical community. The opioid guidelines were developed by an evidence-based multidisciplinary expert panel in order to manage injured workers whose pain has not been controlled by more conservative means. These guidelines have been developed from ACOM's updated 2008 chronic pain chapter. The chapter is included with the third edition of ACOM's occupational medicine practice guidelines. Opioids have high adverse effects for a drug and tolerance to many of these drugs develops rapidly. Thus, routine use of opioids for treating patients with chronic pain is not recommended. Opioids are recommended for select patients in chronic pain settings after other treatment options have been exhausted. There are many treatments that should be considered before opioids. Depending upon the exact diagnosis, these treatments may include exercise, topical medications, distractants such as heat, NSAIDs, low-dose heterocyclic antidepressants, anticonvulsant agents, and self-applied palliative modalities such as TENS units. Of equal importance is the need to consider use of these interventions in conjunction with opioid use. 
to embark, embark upon a trial of opioids without concurrently adding or reinstating other appropriate rehabilitative interventions for a given patient is not reasonable. In California, the Medical Treatment Utilization Schedule, or MTUS, which contains much of the 2004 ACOM guideline, is presumed correct. This presumption can, in appropriate cases, be overcome by better science and peer-reviewed published guidelines. This new opioid guideline should therefore be considered by utilization review vendors in formulating recommendations to authorize or decline requests for opioid medication. And in regulatory news, the California State Compensation Insurance Fund is pursuing legislation to allow it to offer coverage to California employers who have out-of-state employees. Currently, California-based businesses insured with the state fund must obtain a separate workers' compensation policy to cover employees who work out-of-state. The fund hopes to amend the California Insurance Code to allow it to offer workers' compensation insurance that will cover a California employer's out-of-state employees without having to work with two or more insurance companies. One broker in the Bay Area said that almost half of her accounts have some out-of-state exposure. A state fund spokesman said that the current insurance code is ambiguous on whether the state fund can or cannot offer coverage to California employers with out-of-state operations. So, the state fund is sponsoring Assembly Bill 228 to clarify its authority. If the legislation passes, state fund said it would seek reputable, stable, and experienced insurance partners through a competitive bidding process to provide front services including filings, rate plans, rate quote issue technology, loss control, premium audit, and claims services as required. Risk would be assumed by state fund under its existing authority to reinsure. State fund estimates as many as 20 to 30,000 California businesses to, could qualify for the new program. New U.S. Department of Labor data shows California state average weekly wage rose more than 2.4% from $979 per week to $1,355 in this 12 months ending March 31, 2011. The CWCI expects that this will push up minimum and maximum temporary total disability rates for 2012 work injury claims, as well as other workers' compensation benefits that are tied to changes in the state average weekly wage. California's current TTD maximum rate for 2011 injuries is $986.69 per week. But according to the CWCI, the latest increase in the state average weekly wage means the TTD rate should rise to $1,010.50 per week for claims with injury dates on or after January 1, 2012. The minimum weekly TTD rate also is subject to an annual adjustment. So the minimum weight rate of $148 per week for 2011 injury claims should jump to $151.57 for 2011 claims. Other workers' compensation benefits also will be bumped up. This includes TTD paid two years or more after the injury, life pensions and permanent total disability payments for injuries occurring after January 1, 2003, and installment payments on death claims. The wage increase follows several years of state average weekly wage decreases. 
the language of the labor code provision that ties the compensation rates to the state average weekly wage provides for adjustments due to increases in the state average weekly wage only. There are no changes to compensation rates as a result of any decrease. Thus, compensation rates remain unchanged in years where there are decreases in the state average weekly wage. The DWC, in cooperation with the Department of Healthcare Services and the Medi-Cal fiscal intermediary Hewlett-Packard, is working to correct a database error which inadvertently removed many bulk ingredient national drug codes, or NDCs, from the drug pricing calculator and data download file on the DWC website. In March 2011, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services issued an operational instruction letter that initiated the modification of the Medi-Cal claim system. The modification inadvertently dropped some bulk ingredients NDC codes from the database file. The NDC codes that were inadvertently removed are bulk ingredient codes. Thus, the missing data affects NDCs used in compounded medications. The DWC will post the corrected data file on the pharmaceutical fee schedule webpage as soon as it is received. Well, that's all our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, for past editions of our news, and for much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and our special reports using your iPhone, your iPad, or your iPod by searching for 